1: Just got seven pm, which means that it is time for bite into it, where we discuss everything that's new and exciting and thought-provoking and terrifying in the <laughs> world of computers, new technology, online culture, and everything that happens in that behind that little screen in your pocket. With me to discuss all of this is uh, Rowena Murray. Row, how's it going? Pretty good. How's your good self? I'm doing very well. My name is Dan Salmon, and it's really great to be with you this evening. Tonight, uh, what has the Optus Data Breach taught us about how we're treating our data online? Now, Professor Carsten Rudolph from Monash University's Department of Software Systems and Cybersecurity in their Faculty of Human Information Technology will be joining us soon to uh, unpack all of that. And also... How can we use data to improve our built environment and the way that we interact with it? Uh, A new report from also Monash, uh, the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, has worked with the City of Melbourne to look at this very question, and Professor Sarah Pink will be joining us later on to take us through it. But first, it's been a big week in news, hasn't it, (laughs) Just a little.
0: Oh, look, (laughs) there's just been so much afoot, and we're going to be covering off news, events all the data breaches fat bears just all sorts of things so there's some very cool stuff afoot but I was wondering Dan how has your personal week in tech been this week my personal
1: week in tech has been actually reasonably okay yeah. um, I, I I work uh, for in, in in my day job I work for a, a government I won't I won't uh, <laughs> say which government the an Australian one but um the 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 tech issues have been minimal in and which is which is a great Change to be honest. Oh, very nice. nice. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I'm pretty happy with that. How about yourself? Oh well, look, I've been dealing with some very slow internet today, which has just been um, so frustrating. I've been needing to set up some Google Console stuff for an app I'm working on, and Lordy, Lord, that thing has timed out and timed out, and I've had to it doesn't save the form, and you know, you're six pages deep, and you've looked up ABNs and this and this and this, and it's just like, nah. Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> actually, actually, that it's funny you should mention that. I have been having some slow internet at home, and yesterday, it just completely froze on me. One thing I will be completely uh, grateful for is the fact that we can now more or less have 24-hour call centres for a lot of our major ISPs, which means that when you do get home at 7pm and your internet's not working, you can speak to someone to actually talk you through how to do it.
0: Fancy that. Yeah, who knew? Actual people. Actual people. (laughs) Heck, well, speaking speaking with actual people and all things internet and phone... Mm. Um, obviously any of our regular listeners, um, with, you know, one toe of interest in the tech world, well, frankly, a lot of people without a toe of interest in the tech world, um, will be super aware of the mega Optus breach and, um, legally there are some things afoot. Um, we're obviously going to be talking about this in a lot more detail with Professor Carlson Rudolph just in a few minutes, but, um... First up, uh, Morris Blackburn Lawyers um, have got a landing page on their website. Um, In terms of a class action, they have confirmed that they are officially investigating whether this is class actionable. Mm -hmm. So um, that you can, if you are a past or current Optus customer, Mm -hmm. you can register on the website to stay in the loop. And if they do decide to move forward with the class action, you can be part of it. So that's one thing that's happening. You can
1: always trust one of those big firms to kind of jump on the class action band. Wagon as soon as is reasonably possible, can't you?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it was always going to happen. It was always gonna happen. Whether, whether it goes any further, who knows, but well, I guess it'll be a watch this space kind of thing. Oh, exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, so the government is also considering centralising digital ID verification on MyGov oh. in the wake of this breach. So we're definitely going to be interested in unpacking this a little bit more later in the show because, you know, their take on it is that, oh, MyGov is great. There's around 25 million Aussies on the system. It's it's the perfect way to go about all things, but you know you 're literally putting all eggs in one data basket if there if that is breached, which is, that is not just absolutely feasible massive honeypot it's a honeypot it's a minefield it's um complex and yeah. and interesting shall we say um there's also going to be this is another measure which is a federal government one that's been announced this week it 's actually around um, making it uh i guess, I guess theoretically more protective, making it harder for people to um, Protecting your identity in terms of identity theft. So if you're going for a home loan or going for a car loan and needing to go through all of those points of ID when it comes to financial institutions, they're thinking about doing a 12-month amendment to regulations in terms of how uh, data is handled. So just just while the the heat is on for the next 12 months. Mm. Um, you know, they haven't been heavy on detail in terms of how that's going to work Interesting. yet, but they've made an announcement saying we are going to amend um, the regulations so that yeah, people are more protected in terms of moving into financial products. Right.
1: Which, you know, sounds great, but why only for 12 months?
0: True that. If yeah. you find a fantastic solution that works with what is going to be an ongoing problem... It's
1: only going to be mm, riskier as time goes on. Like exactly. our data is getting more and more aligned as it is. A 12-month Band-Aid solution doesn't sound uh, particularly promising unless it is one of those ones which, you know, let's give it a try and then if it works, then we'll make it, make it mm. a bit more long-term. But again, at the same at the same time... As has become painfully clear in the last few weeks. Government is so far behind the eight ball that maybe they need to do it iteratively in order to respond to changes in the market and in technology rather than yeah. setting some legislation in stone and putting it in a draw for the next 10 years and hoping that it covers everything that comes up in the future.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And it was light on detail, so I think they've just gone, we need to do something, let's do something. A press release. And they've gone press release first, yes. Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's go. Indeed. Now, speaking... Speak- Speaking of uh, governments and uh, legislation and this kind of stuff, an interesting uh, news out of uh, the Netherlands where um, a Florida-based company who has employed a Dutch employee, so uh, Cheetu, which is a software development company based in uh, in the US, has um, been sued and lost uh, a, um, unfair dismiss- an unfair dismissal claim. Uh, essentially, uh, the, the grounds for the unfair dismissal was the fact that the um, employee in question... Objected to the company having uh, requiring them to have their webcam on. For the entire time that they were sitting at their desk, so the full mm. nine-hour day. Yeah. This now the um, the employee um, I suppose uh, considered this to be a breach of their privacy, and um, so when he refused, he was fired. Um, the, a Dutch court ended up uh, finding the company Cheeto, fifty thousand US dollars, I believe, and made them pay court costs and back wages and entitlements as well as tearing up the non-compete clause that they required him mm. to sign. Now this this has a whole lot of implications. In various ways, first and foremost, what kind of company thinks that it's okay to have uh, to make you put your webcam on for the full nine hour day, even when we're all sitting in the office? Unless mm. your boss, like if your boss was hovering over your shoulder the entire day, that was a bad boss.
0: Yeah, that's horrible. <laughs>
1: yeah, so, so no one wants to be working in those kinds of environments. Really? Secondly, this is a Dutch court. Uh, finding against a US company
0: mm. uh,
1: for a, for a, for a Dutch-based employee. Now, I'm not a workplace law person, and by and I'm by no stretch uh, a um, interjurisdictional law person, yeah, yeah, uh, or a law person at all, for that matter. <laughs> now that I think about it, I'm not a lawyer, uh, mm. um, but it's see, it, it it's very interesting to see that um, uh, European and EU legislation, regulations, and well, you know. Particularly in the tech space, mm. are starting to have worldwide uh, implications. Looking at things like the General Data Protection Regulation, and yeah. you know the fact that we now have pop-ups every time you go to a new website asking for you to consent to cookies. This is all stuff that the EU has, um, mm. I suppose, uh, brought on, and for for good and ill. Yeah. Um, I I think it's good that there is a, a you know a heavy regulatory uh environment that that's sort of reigning in the cowboys, but um
0: yeah yeah it's um yeah this is something um you know for our listeners at home Dan and I were having a chat about before the show going this is fascinating mm. you know are there limits on you know is it this enforceable mm. is is the fine actually enforceable you know for an American country to pay to a Dutch you know um a, a Dutch ruling who knows, who knows? so and, yeah. it, and, it, and it
1: may come down to you know if they're not if they're in breach of uh, you know the the, the the court order then maybe they might they might be able to leave as they can pull in terms of operations or fines in 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 that other jurisdiction yeah, yeah. so we,
0: we might have a crack at um, getting a guest in a specialist in sort of international law like this who can give us a bit of a rundown because this is going to happen more and more often mm. just about every company in the world is hiring people from all over the place jobs yep. are being advertised as remote or hybrid remote and all this kind of stuff we're just going to see more and more of this so. indeed we are
1: Speaking of EU regulations Mm. making the rest of the world jump, um, (laughs) it looks like we're getting uh, USB-C's on our iPhones. Now, um, this has been an ongoing thing where uh, essentially Apple doesn't like that uh, the European Union is... Dictating the kind of technologies that can be used for charging on various uh, handheld and non-handheld devices. So the, the, the European Parliament today voted overwhelmingly in favour of enforcing USB-C as the common charging port across a wide range of consumer electronic devices. Um, now, they're doing this um, basically to improve efficiency and charging, as well as uh, limit waste for, uh, you know, old cables that get thrown away, that kind of thing. It's actually, uh, in my opinion, it's a really great idea um, not least because Apple hate it because they like to have their <laughs> they like their proprietary cables, their Lightning cables, and all that kind of thing. It, but it looks like Apple are going to have to play ball if they want to operate in the in the European Union. Mm. Yeah, and it, and it does look like that they're probably going to have to do that do it worldwide. It doesn't possibly make a huge amount of financial sense for them to have uh you know USB-C in EU and uh, their Lightning cables everywhere else. Mm. But we shall see how that plays out. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. And they and they did say things like Apple Watches, which are physically way too small to even handle that sort of thing, will have some exemption. So Mm. there's going to be a few things at play. But, yeah, it's it's going to be a really interesting one. Um, And we've got one brief one that we wanted to jump onto before we moved um, into the land of music, which is... um, Tesla and its self-driving scenario, which is a little bit primed running over people and small pets and things, um, they are effective immediately stopping installing ultrasonic sensors in their new cars, phasing out the ultrasonic sensors, um, and it's part of their shift towards camera-only Tesla Vision driver assist tech, which is completely um, at odds with all of the recommendations and what every other thing in the industry is doing, which is a combination of radar cameras and a bit of technology called LIDAR. Obviously, you want fail on fail safes on fail safes. And they're just going, you yeah, know, we're removing it. Also, it's effective immediately. So any new is hitting the market from next month are going to have one-third of the recommended sensory good stuff packed under the hood. So um, beware. Yeah, like yet another
1: example of why this megalomaniac and the companies that he runs (laughs) need to be stopped. Um, Look, I... I'm so sick of talking about Elon Musk, but you mm. can't stop talking about him because everything happened that he, he does is increasingly bonkers. The guy is using the world as his own personal plaything, and we need to stop him. I'm going to calm down now. Maybe yeah, we should play but, some music.
0: But it's really a you know look both, both ways before you cross the street kind of a moment. Yeah. So uh,
1: self-driving Teslas, uh, as, as unsafe as they were previously, <laughs> they've just got a little bit whole,
0: more unsafe, whole new ball game, people. <laughs> R- You're listening
1: to Byte It on 3RRR with Ro and Dan. And the Optus data breach is uh, the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to uh, news, and it has a whole lot of implications about how our data is managed online and what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And uh, to discuss all of this and how we might do things better is Professor Carsten Rudolph uh, from the Monash University's uh, Department of Software Systems and Cybersecurity in their Faculty of Information Technology. Carsten, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ro. Thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure. So, Carsten, in a sentence, where are we at with our capabilities when it comes to data security?
2: <laughs> now, that's a really good question. How much time do we have? No, it's, a long uh, sentence. <laughs> so we, yeah, really, you know, I'm German. We can do long sentences. No, <laughs> anyway, um, the, uh, we know a lot of things how we can solve data security issue, right? So we have a lot of solutions, we have a lot of technology, we know cryptography, we know firewalls and, and whatnot. Um, but in the big picture, I think we focus a lot on how to get services digital and not that much how to do it in a secure way.
1: And and why, why do you think it is? Why is it that everyone seems to have been like, yeah, let's make everything digital, and then not real, and then the security of things seems to be an afterthought.
2: Yeah, I guess um, everybody is afraid to kind of be too late, and and then others already have the, the services in place, and then um, all the analog and, and old and uh, bank branches and and stuff um, is too expensive, and then others probably take over. So it's, it's probably a bit of that being afraid to be too late.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, it, it definitely makes sense that um, there's always this uh, race to be innovative and be creative and have your marketing lined up and, you know, build your clientele as quickly as possible. And it really does seem that, you know, a combination of the ethics and the boring and expensive, but very necessary security seems to fall behind and that, you know, goes from both a legislation standpoint as well as that tech build mm-hmm. perspective. And, and
1: so, so, Carson, we've, we've heard some stuff, you know, in recent days from the federal government around how they think things should be fixed. Do you think that they're moving things in the right direction? What's, what's your take on that?
2: Um, well, it's a bit difficult to say because we don't really have uh, any idea of what exactly the plan is yet. Um so there's a few things happening in the in the government, and it's happening at a lot of different um, areas in the government. So there's not uh, one, let's say, there's nobody really responsible for cybersecurity in the core. There's lots of different things that happen, and uh, one one example is a uh, um, consumer data rights framework, which you probably have heard of. It sounds like a great thing. People get more rights to protect their data and control it than that. But if you unpack it, it's actually something that is more like a data sharing framework. So what it actually does, it establishes APIs, it defines APIs, it defines also how they can securely exchange data. But it's really about enabling the sharing of data, mm-hmm. and and it's not really increasing security. It's actually creating new. Um, Say more vulnerabilities, surfaces, yeah. Probably vulnerabilities potentially.
0: Yeah, and, well, and that
2: seems to be kind of the big story. To well, yeah, we want to do more in that sharing of data.
0: Yeah, because I mean, especially considering um, that the Optus breach essentially came from an unlocked API that was that had been sitting there for absolute years and was just stumbled on, and it's ended up being this absolute catastrophe.
1: Mm-hmm. So, 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 Karsten, whose responsibility does it really fall back to? Is it is it is it a personal responsibility of the users? Is it the companies? is the government need to regulate better, or is it is it a combination of all those things?
2: Well, it's a bit bit a combination, uh, or maybe start with the users. Um, in principle, users should be educated. They should know. They should what is called should be vigilant in some way and they should check their bank accounts and they should not reuse passwords and all these kind of things but ultimately if you look at what happened with Optus there's not a lot the users can do so they don't really have a choice if you want to use that mobile phone service you need to provide that information and you have no control over whether it's stored or not and I was a bit you well know, I was wondering why there's no well, Optus has informed people, but they didn't tell anybody why they actually kept all that data. And and so that means, well, industry um, needs to change the way they deal with data. And I know Optus had to keep some of the data because of Australians' data retention laws to, mm. be able to show who has actually had which IP number and which mobile phone number at what time. But that doesn't explain why they kept. Uh, license numbers and passport numbers and all that information as well. So there's a lot in that. And then ultimately the government also needs to look at regulation and see how uh, data identity frameworks, etc., are actually... Created in a way that they can be secure for sure
0: so you've just um touched on the data retention laws that there is actually a requirement for companies like optus to hold on to so much of this information do you think that it's likely that that's going to be um reviewed or scaled back or changed in the near future
2: Uh, i know it's a bit of a speculative one but (laughs) (laughs) there's always this uh that balance between yeah look we want to protect against terrorism and all these kind of um, scary things that are brought up and and I think no government would actually really pull back on that too much mm. so I, I actually don't expect that to change but um, that is probably also not the the really critical part of it um, in terms of data being stolen the question is a bit why was that data Sitting on a server that had an API that was accessible from the outside, so that just shouldn't happen.
1: And 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 should there be, I suppose, punishment for that kind of uh, um, that 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 laziness? I guess uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a bit a bit a bit sort of uh, a flippant ro- over the top about it. But like, who who how, how should like should Optus be held accountable, or is it is it is it, is it Is it their fault or is it just something that kind of happened?
2: Yeah, I I don't really know what exactly happened with Optus. There's all these rumors about APIs being open to the internet and that, and then Optus says it was uh, all really difficult to get to the data. And um, Well, ultimately, I think companies need to be held responsible for what they do with the data, and there need to be some way to, to punish them, some way to compensate people about it. Uh, but it's uh, well, it's a complex topic, mm.
1: and 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 whole. I mean, I would say that holding a lot of the, a lot of the data they hold is not net, as as you would say as you said earlier, Carson. Like you know, driver's license numbers for for the purposes of of uh, ascertaining your identity at the opening of an account that would make sense. But it, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure it makes sense to keep it to have it on file for years hence.
2: Well, actually, it doesn't. So it's uh, even for opening the account, it doesn't. So we do have technology if we used it, where I could prove um, my license number to you in a way without giving it to you. So we don't need to have protocols in place where I actually need to give it to you. And and there's lots of ways we could build um, checks, identity checks, etc., uh, in a way that um, data is not shared. We have fancy things like zero-knowledge protocols where I can prove stuff to you that I know without giving you any information. And that's it's quite of complicated, but uh, we are not really using these fancy new technologies. Maybe we should be. <laughs> <laughs> would,
1: it, would, would it be a sort of, I suppose, would that require legislative change or would that just be a sort of an overhaul on a, on, a, on an enterprise level of the way that they do things, do you think?
2: I think using that technology um, does not require legislative change. If we want to enforce it, it probably would because it would need investment, and companies usually don't invest that much if they're not forced to do it. I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess in a perfect world, what would you like to see happen? (laughs) Because we love a perfect (laughs) world hypothesis here. I'm bite into it.
2: (laughs) So, so number one is I, I want governments and politicians to actually listen to the researchers and mm. to the people who know how things could be done and it's not just just me there's quite a few colleagues in Australia and um, I want to mention one in particular it's Vanessa Teague uh, with a uh, new now and she has unpacked unpacked all these issues with how can you actually re-identify data that's Apparently, it was supposed to be de-identified. And and she has also analysed the digital identity framework of these new ideas that the government has and shown that there's quite a few weaknesses in in that. Mm. So that's kind of the first thing that I would like to have is that uh, we actually use what we have in terms of the research. Yeah, absolutely. For
1: sure. On, on your perfect wish list there, Carsten, was there, was there anything else or is that is that the number one item?
2: I mean, that's number one. But then the second one is that um, we should also, from industry side, actually use what we have. We do have quite a few banks, for example, that don't provide multi-factor authorization to uh, private end users. They provide it to to enterprise customers, but not to the private ones. And I wonder, why why is that? And then uh, one thing is, I think we should stop uh, blaming victims individual victims of um, cybercrime, because we we really have bad systems in place, and if we have computers and applications where it is a problem that you click on a malicious link, or we have lots of systems where you need to click on links, um, you can't really blame users for doing that, and uh, I know people say that well, human is the weakest link and all that, but if that's the case, we need to build systems where that doesn't matter.
0: Mm.
1: Definitely, definitely, yeah. and, and, and and I suppose that's something that is 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 uh, the the overarching thing. Certainly, as you as you said, Carsten, in, in recent years, it's all about you know protect yourself against identity theft. What, well, who shouldn't people be protecting us from identity theft?
2: Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I mean, the, and there's lots of small things, and for example, banks could start uh, checking the names to bank accounts. When you do a bank transfer, currently they don't. And that makes it incredibly easy. I set up a bank account under my name. I show my identity for that. And then I give you the number and claim, okay, this is the number of, I don't know, the tradie who has done some work in your place or that's uh, whoever it is. And then you transfer money to my bank account. And that would be really easy. And, and all these easy things we currently don't do.
1: Mm-hmm. there's there's definitely room for improvement and I, and I, and I think that this is uh, definitely an area that we're going to have to keep an eye on regularly, particularly as I'm sure the next data breach will be just as big, if not bigger um, <laughs> We've been speaking with uh, Professor and Rudolph from uh, Monash University's uh, Faculty of Information Technology. Thank you so much for your time, Carsten.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Thanks for having me You're
1: listening to Bite Into it on 3RRR with Ro and Dan Now, What can data tell us about the way that we interact with our built environment? There's plenty of data out there and a new report from Monash University's Emerging uh, Technologies Research Lab in collaboration with the City of Melbourne has put a lens on how Melbourne's real-time public data can be gathered and used and to better plan for inclusive future smart cities. Now, uh, Professor Sarah Pink is a Professor of Design and Emerging Technology and the Founding Director of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University and has uh, come in to speak to us about this. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So, I guess the the, the first question is um, this this report. What, what what kind of where did it come from? What what was the
3: impetus for getting getting into this kind of uh, information? So, in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab, we have a partnership with the Emerging Tech Group at City of Melbourne, who are an amazing group to work with, and um, the report is based on a piece of research that we did with them in Argyle Square here in Melbourne. So we. I'm an anthropologist and the people I work with, my team and and the lab, we really get in there in the real world with people. We try to understand how they think about tech, how they experience tech and also how they can imagine their tech futures, which is often very different from the way that organisations, institutions and those dominant narratives imagine those smooth, easy tech futures.
1: And 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 that sounds absolutely fascinating because yeah, I think a lot of the time, you know, people the the people who make the tech just tell us how to use it rather than <laughs> actually uh, asking us how they how we think it should be used. What, what what kind of observations did you get from the research you were doing?
3: Well, what we learned was that people who use Argyle Square, who spent their time there. Um, they were kind of really interested in what the data could tell them. Of course, there are always the issues of privacy, um, issues of cybersecurity, issues of whether people want data to be collected about them. But what we're really interested in was finding out what kind of ethical and practical and really popular uses of data could emerge in that site. So people might be interested in, people might not want to have um, data collected about them that's personal, but they might be really interested in data that might tell them about the, the air quality or the weather that's coming up later. So when you're planning to go out, you can make certain decisions based on that data. So if you can access the data that's being collected in a particular space that you want to go and then participate in later that day, it could be super useful to you. Or if you've got a local business, then you might want to know how many people are around in the square. If you have a coffee shop, then you might want to know how many people might be around and might be likely to flowing into your business at a particular time of the day. So yeah, there's so many uses of data that are very local, very practical, very specific, though to our community people living in Melbourne so what was marvellous about this project is that we were actually able to understand not just the uses that data collected by Center Tech. In the city, would have for the city, would have for organisations, would have for that kind of layer of um, organisations and institutions, but to actually understand how it could be meaningful for those real people who are living in the city who might be able to access it. And then we really wanted to understand, though, given that you've got this data... People are interested in it, they might not access it and use it in ways that are meaningful to them. How do you actually make it available to them? How do you even let them know that it's there? Um, and then once they know it's there, how can they get to it really easily?
1: And oh, Sorry, keep going, please.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we needed to not only understand what people wanted to, to, to do with the data, how they felt about it. We also needed to understand how they imagined their futures with it. So that was a really exciting, that's a really exciting part of our work. We try to not just understand what's happening at the moment, but understanding futures from the ground up, from real people's imaginations, right?
1: That, that, that sounds really cool. Was there was there anything that surprised you in people's sort of ideas around how the data could be used? Because, like, I mean, if you look at particular data sets, a lot of the time they're, they're, their purpose is quite obvious. Mm-hmm. Did anyone come up with a really novel or interesting way to repurpose something that you haven't thought of?
3: What we, what people came up with, which was really fun, was that one of the research techniques that we developed specifically for this project was we asked people to role play, actually being the sensor tech that was collecting the data and there's a reason really good reason for that is because if you ask people oh what would you like that sensor to do what would you like it to collect what would you like its privacy controls to be they're just like well yeah they probably won't really know how to put themselves into answering that question because they don't really identify with a sensor which is up on a pole in a park right but if you actually ask them to be the sensor then you can find out how they would, how, if they were the sensor, how would they protect people's privacy? How would they control the way that the data is used? How would they decide what data is going to be collected? So what was really interesting was that we were able to humanize the sensor technologies. Oh, yeah. And that's what you really need to do if you want to get the ethics and the human dimension of the use of any technology right. You've got to humanize it. You can't turn people into machines or assume that people will make decisions in the way that machines will make decisions. So you've got to make the technology reflect the kinds of decisions that people would want to make.
0: Yeah, so that's really interesting to me because it makes so much sense when the data is so granular and it's very much about that hyper-local perspective mm-hmm. and how small businesses might be able to use it. You really want it to almost feel living and breathing and be a, a really accurate you know, representation. Yeah, of how absolutely. themselves, yeah. Oh, that's super interesting, yeah. So, so
1: when when the uh, users or the people who were participating in the thing were actually, you know, putting their sensor hat on, what were their observations around
3: that? Um, they, they wanted the sensors to be meaningful to them, as I said, and the data to be meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did was we, we tried to think through what the sensors were, how we could group them together, and how we could actually make the sensors friendly to people so people could connect with them. So we came up with the idea of seeing the sensors as a family. And each family of, this family of sensors had different groups, different types of sensors. So we had the weather and the air quality kind of sensors. Then we had the sensors that tracked how many people sat on seats and how many, how many people passed through the park. Then there were the bin sensors and like the toilet sensors and all those kinds of things as well. Um, but by thinking of the sensors as a family we were then able to connect people to them and that's coming back to what i was saying about the communication strategy was so important was that we created a family of sensors and we visualized those what marvelous illustrator visualized those on a website that people could connect to through the qr code so one what we needed to do then was not just think about what the sensors meant we needed to create that digital layer through which people could really not just connect to them but relate to them as a family. And a family, of course, is about caring. So how did people people feel about the sensors? Care was so important. How could they use the data to care for themselves? How they could use it to care for their businesses? How could they use it to care for their family members? That was super important. Um, But then how do they access the data? Through the QR codes, so to the website. But, of course, then you need a material manifestation of the sensor that people can actually use to read the QR code. So another part of our work involved actually turning that family of sensors into a set of sculptures, which we then, after we've done the if you were a sensor experiment, we then did the second experiment, which involved putting prototype sculptures in the park and asking people to engage with them, to tell us how they felt about them, to say what they thought. Um and people, we gave people pens. I mean the, the the um, sculptures were all multicoloured in specific places, representing different sensors. We gave people pens and people wrote on them for us what they might be interested in, what they might want. And um, so, so people. that's where people raise questions. I mean, you know, what are you doing with my data? Questions around privacy and stuff like that. But also, one of the participants wrote across one of the sensors putting Melbourne on the tech map, which for me was really, really inspiring and made me so even more enthusiastic about our project because i think what we've been able to do in this project in melbourne also working with and i can't emphasize how amazing the team at city of melbourne are and how ethical they are and how their collaboration with us was all about uh, partly about their their real passion for getting it right Mm. and for really working with city data in, in a way that works for the people of the city in a way that's ethical and that's trustworthy and and everything so That's what was so marvellous about about this project, actually being able to create those connections between real people's values, putting them in the website, putting them um, in the sculptures and and really communicating that right from the ground to the city.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Oh, great. So we're talking about the uh, City Sensing Data Futures Project report, um, which is a fabulous, um, you know, new project and new set of data. Um, if people want to
3: find out more about it, um, what's, what's next? <laughs> well, we're really, it's actually really exciting. The City of Melbourne is now working with our, um, our proposal, And actually materializing that. So we will be seeing some kind of manifestations of it in the city at some point soon. Um, But for the moment, um, all of our work is reported on our website. So we're the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. Um, We have a website on the Monash site for our lab. Our city sensing data futures report can be downloaded from the sites. Um, Yeah, so look it up. Connect with our work and and join us there. Also, of course, follow us on social media because we're very active on Twitter, LinkedIn. Facebook. Um, we're on all of the social media Fantastic. Channels.
0: Well, we'll do some tweeting um, after the show as well of um, you know, some of the key links so that our listeners can find out more. Definitely. super exciting. And yeah. keep an eye
1: out, I suppose, as you're walking through the City of Melbourne for any changes in, uh, as a result of the data, I suppose.
3: Absolutely. It's, yeah. a, it's a very exciting time. We really want to be out there. Definitely. <laughs> uh,
1: so we've been speaking with uh, Professor Sarah Pink from the, uh, Monash University's Emerging Technologies Research Lab. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's
2: this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more
3: shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
0: We are also very excited to be talking about that song. Made me think of them shaking their little butts, big butts fat bear Week. Yes. And there's been a Fat Bear Week voting scandal. So for those of you not in the know, Fat Bear Week is hosted by Katmai National Park, which is, um, you know, up the far reaches of Alaska-ish area, and... um, Tis the season when the big grizzlies are just stuffing themselves to the gills with all of the tasty salmons to, let's face it, get circular for Mm. their hibernation season. So the name of the game is to get fat, 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 so that they've got something to live off while they're napping for the next six months. So this is the last period, last week or so, before they tuck themselves up in their little hidey holes, and um, the race is on to... Pile on that chunk. So (laughs) Katmai National Park has been running the last couple of years a poll for gorgeous listeners like yourselves to hop on the interwebs and vote for which you think is the fattest bear that day. And um, every year they crown a winner, I believe last year it was Holly the Chonk. Um, The previous winner, Otis, I think his tummy got stuck on a rock when he was trying to climb up a hill he was so fat. (laughs) So it's just marvellous, but... Putting the little text spin on it, um, someone decided to spam the Fat Bear Week poll. For-
1: That's not cool, guys.
0: It's not cool, guys. Stop it. Um, good news is they could work out which votes are fraudulent. They've popped a little bit of a spam filter on it. They've discarded the fake votes and they're rolling ahead with voting. Um, this has gotten big. Fellas, bigger than the bears, themselves. bigger than the bears, shaking their butts to Andy Cooper's song "Party" <laughs> that we were just listening to. Um, there was something like seventy or eighty thousand votes yesterday. Um, real ones, or real fake ones, ones yeah. real ones. So um, get online, um, follow, <laughs> follow. <laughs> just Google Fat Bear Week. I think it's, it's like fatbearweek.org org, yeah. and off you go. Have uh, a vote. Vote for those sh- rotund, chunky circular, bears. Chunky bears, yeah,
1: absolutely. And look, it's 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 a it's a great awareness for conservation as well. I think we all need to be looking after the environment. Another bit of quick news before we finish up: uh, the iPhone 14 has a new feature, which is a crash detection. So, like if you uh, stop quickly in a car, for example, it uh, automatically calls emergency services, which is great. Except when it's detecting you being on a roller coaster and calling calling 911. This has been happening quite a few times. Apparently, people have been uh, on roller coasters; uh, their phone has thought they were in a car crash. It's called 911, and 911 has just Gotten a whole lot of people screaming on a roller coaster. Uh, look, I think that that's that's probably one it's of the It's just funny... really funny. It's just really funny. <laughs> hey, uh, Ro, thank you so much for being with us this evening. We, um, we'd also like to take an opportunity to thank uh, Professor Carsten Rudolph and uh, Professor Sarah Pink, both from Monash University, for coming in and speaking to us. Thank you to Elizabeth McCarthy, uh, or, as always, our talks producer who's helping us uh, get the show together, and our podcaster, Carrie Smythe. I've been Dan Salmon.
0: I've been Rowena Murray, and you're going to hear a super quick note from one of our sponsors, and our farewell. Indeed,
1: cheers, everyone! After that is the International Pop Underground with Anthony Crew. Woo!
0: Hi, this is Vanessa Tejolka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into Its Twitter or Facebook accounts.